0: This is what's called a stepped wedge cluster randomised control trial.
1: It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful.
0: Even conventional or
2: complementary medicines weren't working for them. Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that
0: we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think. Think Health on 2 ser 107.3.
3: Hello, welcome to the program. Ellen Lee Beter with you. Today, pelvic floor dysfunction among nurses and midwives.
1: Nurses holding on because they have to hold on or, or reducing their fluids because they're perhaps in theatre and they can't get to the toilet and leave the operating theatre. So we know that there, there are perhaps workforce issues surrounding nurses being able to have what we would call
3: a healthy bladder and how early childhood teachers in Hong Kong are becoming more emotionally aware of their students. But first on the program, do you ever watch a sports game on TV and think, why aren't those athletes collapsing in exhaustion? For tennis players, it's all about the training, and it's as intense as you might think. Tennis players train for endurance so they can play for hours on end and for flexibility to make quick sprinting movements across the court in every direction. Rob Duffield is an associate professor in sport and exercise science at UTS. He spoke to Jake Morecambe about the strategy behind tennis training in what's called exercise physiology.
4: Exercise physiology relates to how the systems and the cells of the body respond to both
2: acute exercise stimuli and how they adapt over time to chronic training stimulus. So how is that then tracked? How is that put into practice for those who play sport? Yeah, well you can look at a whole body model of
4: how the overall organism functions um, or you can look at specific Systemic physiology, so how the heart or the lungs or the hormonal or the musculoskeletal system responds, and you can have measures of either that systemic
2: level or as just a whole body outcome or a whole body performance marker. Let's look at an example. So it can be aside from tennis, it can be anything. What's the, what's the benefit from using yeah. it? Yeah. So you can say from a, a start of preseason to end
4: of preseason, get a range of tests either in the field or in a laboratory. Uh, determine how the athlete responds to a particular exercise intensity or workload and see how they then adapt. So see how successful that training program is. Benchmark players for their physiological state as well as, more importantly, their performance outcomes and track them over time to monitor whether they're adapting appropriately,
2: whether they're overtraining, whether they're undertraining and then adjust the, the program accordingly. Looking at tennis in particular, what are the biggest demands in the sport? Yeah,
4: Tennis is a complex one. Um, it's essentially a skill-based sport, and any skill-based sport requires prolonged, ongoing, high repetition of those skilled movements. Right? The, the movement competencies is what, is what it's termed, but the development of ground strokes, of serves, that takes time, that takes exposure to training, and it takes, it takes large volumes of skill repetition. But that skill repetition, if it's done in a, a, a non-competitive uh, or a non-physically demanding way, won't develop the physiological or physical capacities. You need high speed, high power, okay? because the actual key outcomes of tennis are to produce high power and high force for velocity through the, through the ground stroke. You need high uh, aerobic capacity because matches have long durations and they're consecutive days and repeated matches over many days. So you need fatigue resistance. Uh, you also need the the neuromechanical and balance control because footwork and patterns to set up for the ground stroke are are critical. So. You know, if you train all of those independently you're already at probably 25 hours a day of training which is obviously impossible so then you need to be aware of what the athlete can actually handle and then appropriately train all those different capacities and demands in only a couple of sessions or two or three sessions a day with adequate recovery between them so the diverse demands make it quite complex and so then how you meet all those
2: demands in enough training that doesn't overtrain is the, uh, the million-dollar question. How does tennis fare? I know each sport has its own physical demands, but with tennis, even as what you were saying there, it's each and every area that they have to be so good and proficient at because yeah. they're running around the court, they're making really acute movements, but then they have to have real power behind it. Matches can go on for upwards of four hours. Yep. So how does it compare... In terms of its demand, yeah. In for some other ways, sports.
4: in some ways, it's probably not that it's irrelevant to compare because you only train for the competition, you know. Mm. And a lot of sports have suffered from the idea of, oh, well, that sport's very fit, so should, we should copy that sport or how that sport trains. But the reality of training is that you want to prepare that athlete for the competition demands that athlete will meet. Tennis does capture a range of demands, but it probably doesn't. Um, exacerbates some of those demands, like other sports. Say so AFL will run 15 to 18 kilometres and much more higher intensity running. Okay, rugby will have its collision-based, but with a lower volume. Tennis has those acute musculoskeletal demands, particularly through the serve uh, and between through hip rotation for ground stroke, um, as well as the shoulder, and then have you know a radius of probably three to five metres where all the movements are in. But those movements are not high velocity or high speed but they're very high acceleration and deceleration so that's kind of the the specific demands that you're trying to develop in your training that an athlete can perform in a competition as you say for upwards of five hours and sometimes on consecutive days or multiple days you know with
2: limited recovery when we're talking about endurance in tennis and talking about you know surviving the duration of the match what exactly are they doing in training to prepare for that? Or is it just this, like, coalition of everything that they have to do to be able to survive <laughs> because it's so yeah, demanding? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, training
4: should theoretically prepare you for the worst situations you'll find in competition. The worst situation you'll find in tennis competition is a bit hard to replicate because, say, if you look at if the, the truly elite level, you could have... Uh, at a grand slam, if you're if you wanting to win a grand slam, you have to play say seven matches within 13 days. Any one of those matches could be upwards of say five hours. Normally three to five hours. Within that three to five hour match, you'll hit potentially a thousand ground strokes plus serves, and those ground strokes need to be above 100 kilometers per hour. Okay, so and then the movement will be around about six or probably five to eight kilometers within that single match, then repeated over multiple days. So to train for that is very, very difficult. Just the sheer volume of um, capacities and elements you need to train. So within any given training day, a key outcome for a tennis player is stroke play. So the repetition of stroke play is critical. But then if you try and train that isolated, just on court, just with the key repetition, um, then you're not going to necessarily train your aerobic capacity or you won't necessarily train speed and power so if you then try and train them separately that's two you know and, and you train them together then you're you're training two different energy systems and two different ways to recruit muscle and you're either not going to train them effectively or you need to separate them in which case you're now up to three hard training sessions a day which is not going to work so the perfect world is to then Collapse most of those ideas or most of those training into one key session, maybe two key sessions. And then that comes down to how you prescribe your drills. So if your training drills on court are fundamentally just standing and hitting in one similar position with limited movement, you're not going to train those movement abilities. But if you start creating different drills that sequence one another, that train both the ability to hit, the ability to hit in different positions, as well as start taxing movement demands and aerobic capacity, then you can start to get you know not the, the magic potion of all in one, but you can start training multiple factors in
2: the one session or in you know less than three or four sessions a day, which is impossible to do. How about time off the court? How important is rest in say a period of you know it's however many matches over a short short sure. period? How can they go from such extreme conditions on the court? to them relaxing and not completely exhausting themselves? Well, there's probably two parts to that.
4: One is from a training perspective where tennis players will actually do a lot of off-court training as well. And so they may then additionally train, say, aerobic capacity. Because of the demands of tennis on court, sometimes it's difficult to really tax the aerobic energy system at maximal levels. You can get fatigue resistance from hitting for long durations, but that doesn't necessarily improve your aerobic capacity. So off-court tennis players will often then try and get off their legs. So it's on the bikes, on the steppers, just aerobic conditioning that doesn't involve body weight. Or separate to that, it's uh, musculoskeletal conditioning, so strength and conditioning, but not necessarily heavy lifting. So it's more training the, the weaker muscles of any joint. Okay? So that's one part of a lot of training happens off court to really focus on, on targeted areas. In match conditions, uh, and on, t- particularly on tour, it becomes a slightly different issue because if you're playing regularly, then that time between is ideally recovery time. But if you use it too much as recovery time, then you lack training time. So when you're on in tournament mode and you're playing regularly, winning or losing, if you're not able to train, then over a period of time, match play doesn't necessarily make you fitter. It hardens you for match play, which is critical. So there's a real balance when in tournament mode between having recovery because you need recovery from that match load you know, and and then or missing training because you're in a recovery mode too much. So that's a real balance depending on the athlete, depending on the tournament schedule, depending on the type of match.
3: Associate Professor Rob Duffield from Sport and Exercise Science at UTS speaking to Jake Morecambe.
2: You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3.
3: Currently, 4.8 million Australians live with incontinence or pelvic floor dysfunction. The number is one in three for women who have had a baby. You've probably heard of urinary incontinence. This is where urine leakages occur. And there's also faecal incontinence where you can't control your stools. Pelvic floor dysfunction is the umbrella term for these types of incontinence and another 250 types. It's a condition that has a lot of stigma and, as you can imagine, affects the way you work. Nurses and midwives are especially susceptible to pelvic floor dysfunction as their bladder habits aren't always healthy. Taking a bathroom break isn't exactly an option when you're in the operating theatre. Heather Pearce is a PhD candidate in the Faculty of Health at UTS she talks us through what pelvic floor dysfunction is and the implications it has for the nursing and midwifery workforce.
1: The pelvic floor is made up of muscle tissue that's connected to ligaments, that's also connected to fascia or stretchy tissue that helps to support things at the base of the pelvis, organs at the base of the pelvis. And it's also innervated with nerves. And so when we talk about the pelvic floor um, and pelvic floor dysfunction, firstly we're talking about a pelvic floor that is a unit and supporting in females the bladder and the uterus and the bowel and dysfunction in the unit can be related to dysfunction in those, in those systems and the functioning of those systems. What's the prevalence of
3: pelvic floor dysfunctions in Australian females
1: if you've had a baby, the prevalence is about one in three. So there is some well-established uh, literature around the prevalence in in females who have had babies. And, and we say that around one in three women who've ever had a baby wet themselves. The prevalence increases as, as age increases as well. So when you look at prevalence rates, you need to look at the age group and, and as women get older, um, urinary incontinence prevalence increases with um, around parity, around childbearing, and it also increases around the time of menopause.
3: What are the different types of pelvic floor dysfunction?
1: Because the pelvic floor involves the in in a female involves the uterus, the the bladder, and the bowel. dysfunction, is described according to dysfunction in, in the functioning of those organs. So the International Continent Society has given us direction in terms of terminology and there are actually over 250 different definitions for pelvic, female pelvic floor dysfunction. 250? Yep. So it's, it's a complex area.
3: What are some of the types of pelvic dysfunction that people would be most familiar with? Uh,
1: incontinence. So, so urinary incontinence, which is the leaking of urine, and that can be connected with activity, jumping on a trampoline, jogging. Uh, it can also be connected with coughing, sneezing, laughing. There's also a, a, a leakage of urine that can occur if you can't get to the toilet in time, so leaking before you you make it to, to pass urine under control in the, in the toilet. There's also the back passage, so it's not something that we often like to talk about necessarily, but we all, always Universally, have a giggle about incontinence of of flatus, which is wind, passing wind without <laughs> wanting to. Uh, there's also incontinence, anal incontinence, uh, and faecal incontinence, which is losing a stool, not being able to control the stool.
3: What causes pelvic floor dysfunctions?
1: There are a lot of different causes. <laughs> a lot of different causes.
3: Well, let's look at let's look at women because that's where your yep. research is focused on.
1: In the childbearing years, and particularly um, women who've had. Uh, Um, a vaginal delivery um, or trauma surrounding vaginal delivery they are more likely to have some form of pelvic floor dysfunction so it could be connected to nerve nervous um, input into the the muscles it could be weakness of the muscles trauma to the muscles so stress incontinence is the most common form. Having this
3: pelvic floor dysfunction is obviously a bit embarrassing and would affect on people's work, correct? That's right. So if you're concerned about leaking urine,
1: there's a a lot of stigma that can be associated with that. And it can be kind of stressful if you can't get to the bathroom, if you can't get to the bathroom to empty your bladder. And there has been a little bit of research around looking at the nurse's bladder, um, nurses holding on because they have to hold on or or reducing their fluids because they're perhaps in theater and they can't get to the toilet and leave the operating theater um, so we know that there there are perhaps workforce issues surrounding the uh, nurses being able to have what we would call a healthy bladder
3: habits and you have been looking at nurses and midwives in particular you've just done a review what have you found about their pelvic floor dysfunctions
1: well the, one of the main findings of the review is that we don't know a lot. The majority of nurses are female and so we know I think it's around 90% of the nursing and midwifery workforce are female. Also nurses and midwives are getting older so we also know that uh, pelvic floor dis- dysfunction or the prevalence of, of different types of dysfunction increases with age. Another factor that influences things is obesity so we know that if you're overweight or obese it doubles your risk of having all different types of incontinence. And so we know that it's in the workforce, but what we don't know is whether it affects a nurse or a midwife's ability to do their work, so their work productivity. So if we define productivity as as either being absent, so having sick leave or leaving the workforce or being at work but not being able to perform fully to do what's required in their job then nurses and midwives may change their positions or leave leave certain positions particularly if they're not able to to get to the toilet or control that urine leakage if it's a urine leakage problem you've done this review what's the next step in your research two studies turned up. There weren't many studies that looked particularly at pelvic floor dysfunction in, in workforce groups and workforce groups as in identifying which particular workforce. There are some large studies that look at the dysfunction of something called overactive bladder and an overactive bladder is where you need to run to the toilet um, a lot And uh, or looked at incontinence itself. And we know that from those large population-based studies um, that having overactive bladder or having incontinence does impact, uh, seems to impact your your work productivity. However, we haven't looked at um, particular workforce groups like nurses and midwives, and we know, as I said before, that predominantly they're female.
3: So the next phase of your research is going to be looking at nurses and midwives in particular, what their lower urinary symptoms are and how that affects their productivity. Yeah, I'm going to look at... uh,
1: lower, not just incontinence, but but the broader definition of lower urinary tract symptoms, going to be asking nurses and midwives about their work habits and their bladder habits and also looking at their productivity. So trying to match up and to see whether those symptoms of leakage or um, those bladder symptoms, whether they make a difference to the nurse's ability to do her work and whether if they have symptoms, whether they predict... Their, their choices about leaving their role or, or in fact leaving the workforce. The research will also be hoping to provide recommendations for the workforce. So by interviewing and talking to nurses and midwives about their experience, not only identifying the problem and if there is an impact on, on their ability to work as nurses and midwives, but providing employers with strategies for pelvic, what we call pelvic floor health promotion.
3: If you do have a pelvic floor dysfunction, can it be fixed? Well, that's the good news, yes. (laughs) In a lot of cases,
1: because this is a a fairly intimate problem, it's not something that a lot of us talk about. And I think even as as women, as nurses and midwives, it's embarrassing. Uh, It can be embarrassing to admit to anybody, really, that you leak urine. And and, uh, so there's so often a big cover up you know you'll use your pads you'll go to the toilet more frequently just in case so that you don't have those symptoms so part of the importance of this research is is talking about it and talking about it so that we can develop strategies that help promote what we know is the evidence and, and the evidence particularly around your incontinence is that it can be helped. There's very strong evidence and we call it a level one evidence and a grade A recommendation to do pelvic floor muscle training to help with incontinence and also for um, bladder bladder training to help with symptoms of, of urge urge incontinence or an overactive bladder and to those um, strategies should be guided by a health professional.
3: Heather Pearce, PhD candidate in the Faculty of Health at UTS.
0: You're listening to Think Health
2: on 2
3: 107.3. Welcome back to the program. Ellen Lee better with you. Early childhood educators are vital to a child's development, but how much do they know about childhood trauma? For example, when an otherwise content toddler starts having tantrums that are very out of character, how should their preschool teacher react? Professor Lawrence Lamb has been looking at how to better train early educators in their knowledge of social emotional development and emotional intelligence. Lawrence is a professor of public health at UTS. He's been training early childhood teachers in Hong Kong about emotional intelligence and how to weave that into curriculums. Early
0: childhood teachers actually plays a very important role in the development and growth of young children. Given that young children, the most crucial sort of um, input for the growth and development will be from their parents, definitely, as well as their close relatives. But nowadays, a lot of young children actually spend quite a lot of time in, in in kindergarten. So early educators or early childhood educators uh, play a very, very crucial role for the overall development, of course, but also for the socio-emotional development of young children.
3: Your research is mainly focused in Hong Kong. What sort of education do early educators get in Hong Kong?
0: Um, the early educators or the early uh, early childhood teachers will receive different types of training, all depends on whether they will be able to get into a degree program. There are degree-based, um, what we call the early childhood teachers. They are fully trained. They have basic sort of training in um, early child development and as well as early child pedagogy curriculum uh, design and all this sort of thing as a full degree program as um, a bachelor degree in education for early childhood and there is also another layer of um, or another venue of training for uh, those who would like to get involved in that industry um, there is some there's a profession of um, training course like in those what we call the vocational training um Institutes.
3: Your research has been looking at trauma. How much do early educators learn about childhood
0: trauma? In terms of trauma, childhood trauma actually is, it's got a very broad sort of definition. What I'm really interested in is more of the socio, more of the emotional and psychological type of trauma.
3: So what would you define as emotional and psychological trauma?
0: Well, um, any, any um, incidents that actually cause discomfort to the child and it may actually have some sort of psychological impact.
3: Can you give us in some examples?
0: In terms of physical trauma, of course, you, when you experience a car crash or whatever, now you have a, um, a physical component or a physical injury. But at the same time, you also have um, psychological effect. And of course, that will be the trauma that or more of the psychological trauma associated with the incident. There is other type of trauma that children may experience uh, will just be quite common in a lot of families. Like for example, parents um, having dispute. So those are actually very traumatic experiences for, cho- for children, particularly for young children. They may not be able to express it. They may not be able to verbalise it. But nevertheless, they, there is kind of an impact on them.
3: So you said that children often can't verbalise what's mm. happening to them. Mm. Are there other ways that they may express that they're going through psychological or emotional trauma?
0: Uh, absolutely, absolutely. A lot of young, cho- young kids, when they have experienced that sort of emotional and tra- psychological trauma, if they couldn't express it verbally, they will express it in another way, like in their behavior. They may actually experience difficulties in, in their sleep. They may actually have kind of what we call regression. For for example, young kids, very young kids, after they've gone through the training period, they they could be able to control their bowel, could be able to control their uh, the tontry habit. But once they they experience that sort of traumatic experience, they may actually. Have some sort of regression.
3: And are early educators trained to recognise these signs and symptoms?
0: Not that I'm aware of, particularly in Hong Kong, in the in situation in Hong Kong, because early childhood uh, educators or teachers, they are not, that, it is not, not their role really. in... in, in.
3: So that's probably the domain of psych- child psychologists.
0: Um, strictly speaking, it should be, no doubt. Early childhood educators or teachers—they do have um, some basic understanding and training in early childhood development. But in terms of identifying socio-emotional problems and uh, sometimes the emotion, actually emotional uh, difficulties within the um, early childhood period, it's not that easy. And some of those teachers may just be sort of mis- mislabelling just. Launtiness, or um, sometimes it's, it's um, other behavioural issues.
3: You, you've actually done a project recently where you've addressed this with early childhood educators. Can you tell us a bit about what you actually did?
0: Yes. Um, the project I'm actually sort of conducting in Hong Kong is really to provide training in specific areas of socio emotional development for early childhood educators. Particularly in in the aspect that we would like to enhance the so-called socio-emotional literacy, that means we want to enhance the the understanding and the appreciation of the socio-emotional sort of development of um, young children, and. On top of that, we also would like to provide some sort of help and support for the early childhood teachers and educators in terms of their own personal social emotional growth. So in a sense, we would like to enhance their so-called emotional intelligence so that they will be able to understand not just the, the children's development, but also their own personal need.
3: So it's all about getting teachers to recognise the emotions of their students.
0: That's right. Yes, exactly. Um, that is really, really correct. We would like them to um, not just to recognise, but also to also enhance those uh, positive emotion, and also to have the, some of the basic skills of handling some of the negative emotion. Uh, like, for example, if one if a young child is throwing a tantrum. In class, and sometimes the teacher may not really understand why the reason for that sort of behavior, uh, and and how to handle it right there. It may not necessarily need to be able to resolve the the emotion, but at least if the teachers have some basic training in handling right at that moment and diverging the anger or the you know, aggression in some other sort of you know, way or, or in some other sort of venue. Then that can actually be quite positive, because on one hand the class will not be disrupted. on the other hand, the child will be able to, in a sense, protect it and, uh, in a safe environment, and also the, hand, uh, the teacher will be able to handle it and also talk to, to, to the kids later on and try to resolve the, um, you know, the emotion:
3: Lawrence Lamb, Professor of Public Health at UTS. Don't forget if you'd like to find out more about anything you've heard today you can visit us at 2ser.com forward slash we're also available on demand just search for think health in your favorite podcast app please remember that you should not consider the contents of this show medical advice if we've made you ask questions go and see your gp this show is produced with the support of the university of technology sydney faculty of health i'm ellen lee see you next week for more in health research and news